seconds flat. Give me up. This is the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. Sammy's been broken three times. He refuses to give in. He might do it. Look at that guy. Look at Black Zero. Oh, my God. Hello again, friends. Welcome to Mile 92 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. We are coming to you mid-Olympics as the games roll on in Tokyo. It has been an exhilarating week plus of action so far. We're going to touch on our favorite moments soon. And also our main topic this week is inspired largely by the conversation around Simone Biles and her decision to step aside from several gymnastics events as she dealt with her mental health during competition. So we're going to share our experiences with running and mental health and also some advice for mastering race day and the anxieties that might come with that for all of us as we toe the line. But I got to welcome in two co-hosts tonight. We are all here together, the triumvirate The three amigos, the big three, I'll call it LeBron, Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh. I was going to say Trace Leches, but I think that's a cake with three milks. I don't know if that's appropriate right now. I got Cosmo. (laughs) It does sound good, buddy. I got Cosmo. How are you feeling, Cosmo? Welcome home. Feeling good, coach. Thanks for having me on. It is a pleasure. And of course, I also have my main man, Benjamin. What's up, buddy? Hey, man. It is beautiful to have all three. I thought Ben would maybe give us a little more enthusiasm in his introduction other than the simple hey man. All right. There is no better way to spend your 27th birthday than doing a (laughs) podcast with your friends. So I'm happy. Happy birthday. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, man. So I was going to wait till the end to... (laughs) To pull out some birthday stunts. I haven't even said anything to Ben about it yet. I knew it was this week and I couldn't remember which day, so I didn't want to jinx it. Shark week, baby. Oh, God. And you are prowling the waters, my friend. (laughs) Benny, let's start with you. We are a little over halfway through the track portion of the Olympics in Tokyo, and we are a week and a half through the games as a whole. It is flying by. What's been your favorite story? Not even the biggest, but just just your favorite story you've seen on the track. Wow, that's a fantastic topic. I'm completely unprepared for. Thanks for giving me that in the show notes prior to this. Honestly, I have to say it was the men's 10,000. Seeing the young buck, Grant Fisher, in his third 10K ever, finishing in fifth place for the United States, battling in the heat, Granted, the race was pretty tactical, but he was there until a lap to go, and he was beaten by men with 30 to 40 second faster personal bests. Um, He shows a lot of promise, and I was standing on our couch hooping and hollering. I was amped up. It was definitely the most inspiring race to me. He was everything we hoped he could be. That was a fantastic race. Tactically, as you said, he did everything right. Fifth place at his age on the world stage in an event dominated by East Africans. 
Grant Fisher has arrived as a, a threat in world championships and Olympics going forward. For those of you who have not seen the action, watch the replay. He actually gets clipped a little bit with, I think, about 300 to go and maybe could have had even a little bit more in him for that last move. And as you said, pretty rough conditions for distance running. All the distance events have been under really difficult conditions. And the only time the conditions have broken that we've seen have been for just incredible downpours in the uh, 400 hurdle women's semis. The pole vault was that day. We had to delay some field events. Ben, you want to add to that? So another thing I took from Grant's race, um, I was listening to the commentators and they pointed out other American men who have finished fifth or higher in the 10,000 at the Olympics. And those names were Billy Mills, uh, Meb, Galen Rupp, and then I believe there was one other name. Oh, Frank Shorter. Yes, thank you. Good. Yes. So yep. he's in great company. Uh, this shows a lot of promise for his career. He is among the greats. Yeah, so three there with Meb, Rupp, and Shorter, who are in the handful of greatest American distance runners ever. And Billy Mills, who is a gold medalist the last time we were in Tokyo. That's pretty good company. I'm glad you brought that comment up uh, because it reminds me, you earlier mentioned how excited you were on the couch. It, it reminded me of Rupp in 2012. That was the last time that I was like on the floor, pounding the floor as somebody's coming around for that last lap thinking, holy cow, we're going to get a medal. It was a fantastic performance from Grant Fisher. You sent me a text sometime yesterday. I won't read all the texts like I normally do with you and timestamp them and heart emojis and all that kind of stuff. But you sent me a text and said, is this the greatest day of racing ever? And that was like midday yesterday before the women's 400 hurdles. So I'm going to twist it just a little bit. And I'm going to say greatest 24 hours of racing we've ever seen. If we go from Eastern time, about 11 Eastern on Monday night, right before the men's 400 hurdles through 11 Eastern Tuesday night, women's 400 hurdle final, we saw two of the greatest races I've ever watched. Two of probably the 10 greatest races of all time in both those hurdle races. We talked about it last week that they would be some of the greatest duels we've ever seen you could make arguments that each was the greatest race ever. The only one that immediately comes to mind recently in Olympic action is one we've discussed before, the 2012 London 800 uh, with David Radisha's world record. As an aside, the 800-meter final this year may be the worst 800-meter final ever with 145-plus winning and a bunch of guys who we thought were medal contenders flopping. 400-meter hurdles men... Karsten Warholm breaking his own world record. Rye Benjamin breaks the previous mark, an incredible duel. Karsten Warholm is running under 46 seconds over hurdles, one lap around a track. Cosmo, I know you are a huge Karsten Warholm fan. Tell me your favorite thing about the Norwegian. Isn't it obvious? Uh, first of all, he's Finnish. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I get that wrong every time. Uh, it, obviously, it was the finish. You know, once he, um, now I'm confused. Uh, it, it was obviously when he was ripping his shirt off at the end, and he didn't quite get all the way. It made me think, like, this guy should 
great run, first of all. But second of all, get in the weight room, bro. Like, let's get the shirt off. I knew that's what you were going to say, Benji. You'd like in here. Go ahead, please. <laughs> I thought the shirt rip was a little Clark Kent-esque. It was still <laughs> tied up at the top. So it's like you yeah. had the S coming out. I see. I see. I see. I wish she had had a phone booth there at the finish line to step into. Cosmo, <laughs> you were one of my immediate thoughts is like, if Cosmo ever won a race and went to peel his shirt off, there is no question that thing would rip off in nanoseconds. With your incredible strength, you whoa, would- Whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, I think it's more about the preparation of the, the shirt than it is the uh, strength. Of the, uh, he obviously thought about it beforehand. You know, you just got to plan better. So it's about a little pre-snip to it before you go Hulk Hogan. You got you to cut it a little bit and, and let yeah. people know that you're going to tear it later on. I guess so. I don't know where we're going down this rabbit hole. <laughs> true or false, at the Spinks Run Fest, when you won the marathon, <laughs> was your singlet a tearaway? <laughs> no, it was not. Um, it was a size too small. I disagree. <laughs> because it belonged to um, our friend James um, Quattlebaum, who, as fit as he is, is, is uh, you know needs to get in the weight room as well. Let me pause you there. How many <laughs> how many pounds in your upper body alone do you think you have on James Quattlebaum, and you wore his singlet? Oh my gosh! Oh, you know it was probably only thirty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's pretty. He's pretty fit. So Karsten Warholm tears off the top. I knew you'd love it. He's your guy now. Yeah. Uh, Rye Benjamin, an incredible effort. And they're both mm -hmm. young. We're going to watch this happen again. We're probably going to watch it through the next three years of world championships and the next Olympic Games. It was such incredible competition. I want to see Warholm run a flat 400 and a flat open 800 against really good guys in those events. I, it would have been fun to throw him in the 800 this morning in that tactical, not-so-fast race and just see what he could have done. Okay, so I have a couple thoughts. Men's 800, we're going to jump. Our third-place finisher is a converted 400-meter hurdler. Mm -hmm. It's his first year running the 800. So right away, I'm like, this guy can do it. And then my second thought, we have the Prefontaine Classic coming up. Oh, yeah. Are we going to see a rematch? Oh, I, I hope so. And I'd have to think so. This is a moment for track and field to capitalize on and for both these men to capitalize on and for both the women in the 400 hurdles to capitalize on as well. Both Sydney and Dalila, who also went under previous world records. Just think about this. In the women's 400-meter hurdles, the third place finisher, like a month ago, would have broken the world record. That's how fast she was. And the three of them were pretty much together through eight hurdles. We need to see these rivalries continue to play out. Yeah, pre-classic is like the next big, really one huge event that's left this year. And then the world champs on that same stage at Hayward Field next summer let's rewind reboot do it all again this is an opportunity for our sport 
to grow, to flourish because we've taken advantage of the stage. And in the middle of that 24 hour period, what we skipped over was the women's 800 meters where two teenagers just went bonkers. Your gold medalist Mo gets an American record at 19 years old. Cosmo can confirm that. He has been searching through uh, birth records on all the contestants. We spoke offline earlier and he was certain of everyone's age. So thank you for mm -hmm. that, Cosmo. No, I just knew that one. I, I read it this week. Oh, okay. You saw that somewhere on the internet, did you? That's right. Okay, good. Yeah, Benji. I just have to go ahead and ask because only our Twitch uh, viewers can see us right now. <laughs> uh, I notice Cosmo keeps getting up and leaving the room. So yes. are you just verifying these ages? Is that what's going on? That's what I'm doing. I have a, okay. yeah, I have a, a mainframe in the next room. I have to <laughs> access my records. It does yeah. make me nervous every time you get up and leave. Why are you leaving, Cosmo? What's happening over there? You really need to know. Well, I'd like to know. I had to go to the restroom. Uh, oh, okay. Well, let's, we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there. <laughs> we'll go back to the 800 meters. And you had a second teenager, 19-year-old, Keely Hodgkinson, the British champion. She takes silver. Remember, no Laura Muir, who is only in the 1500. She's advanced to the finals. Uh, so the teenagers are dominant. Raven Rogers, American, comes from the back of the pack and just outkicks Gemma Riki, another Brit, for the bronze. So that 24-hour period of 400 hurdles, the 800, and then the 400 hurdles again with the women. I want to bring up two other moments, though, before we move to our main topic. The first is just quintessential Olympic passion. That is the men's high jump where we have a shared Olympic medal uh, when the co-gold medalist chose not to jump off, but rather share the gold. And the reaction from the Italian, Gianmarco Tamberi, do yourself a favor if you haven't seen it. NBC does a great job leaving these streams up online so you can watch the previous action and you're able to skip through it by event. Gianmarco Tamberi gets a gold and goes down to the track sobbing with such raw, intense, and incredible emotion. And he is laying next to the cast that he wore when he was injured five years ago. And the dream deferred from 2016 in Rio to an Olympic championship in 2021. It is unreal. And he's still celebrating, still crying as the men's 100 finishes, which is the next event on the track. And his countryman wins gold in really an upset and unexpected. I had to go from, I'm just the Italian guy on the line to I'm the European record holder to I'm now the Olympic gold medalist. This happens over the course of the rounds. And Tamberi's right there because he's still celebrating down by the high jump pit. And they embrace each other warmly as Jacobs rounds through the curve after winning his gold. Just exceptional moment. And the other in one of the great shows of uh, Olympic confidence, Ryan Krauser, 
the world record holder in the shot put, which will be happening as we record on Wednesday evening. That'll be happening later this evening. So by the time this gets to you, you will know if he is a gold medalist with another world record. It takes automatic qualifying to move out of the prelims in the shot. You just have to throw a certain distance. Ryan Krauser released the shot, immediately knew he had the necessary distance, and walked off out the back of the circle, held up one finger, said one and done, and walked out. He was done for the day. He had done enough. I wish he would have torn his shirt off like the Norwegian. It would have been perfect. Maybe he'll save that for after he takes a gold. But it was just a fantastic moment of Ryan Krauser knowing who he is, what he is as an Olympic favorite, and saying, I put in the work for the day, boys. You can go ahead up and throw the shot around and see if you can hit my number, and we'll see you in the finals. Which finger was it? (laughs) (laughs) It was, I believe, the index finger on the left hand. Uh I could be wrong. It might have been right. I can't remember now. It was an appropriate finger, Benjamin. Excellent. Okay. Guys, before we go ahead to the uh, feature topic, more serious moment here, anything else y'all would like to add on the Olympics to this point? So going back uh, to the high jump, um, I was reading a post-competition analysis of it. And after uh, some discussion with both of those men, just talking about the purity of the event, they both had agreed the goal of the high jump competition was to see what man could jump over the bar at the highest height. Mm. So they didn't want to go to a jump off and do jumps at a lower height and see who can clear it the most. They believed in the purest form and simplest form of that competition. And I I think that's what the games are about. Um, And they really exemplified that. I thought that was really cool. That's spot on, Benji. And that is a, a great story. And you're right, we so rarely see these high level competitions come down to a situation where we even need a jump off because typically somebody passes at a height or somebody misses a height once or someone jumps higher than someone else and this was one of those rare moments and it happened on the biggest stage and you're right that is pure olympic spirit as it was designed 125 years ago when we brought back the modern olympics in athens greece in another sport at these games, in in the gymnastics. We've seen a lot of conversation and to some degree controversy swirl around the greatest gymnast that maybe America and the world has ever seen. Simone Biles has more gold medals than I have silverware at the Olympic and International World Championships level. I believe she has something like 19 golds over the course of her career. She has been a mainstay of the recent Olympics and carried the American team. There is no question she is at the top of the sport. However, she has faced the very real circumstance of the mental aspect of the sport, the pressure, the anxiety, the stress that have come with a build that's been extended for an extra year, the weight that comes with the training behind that, living through a pandemic in preparation, going to Tokyo under unique circumstances, incredibly difficult circumstances, unlike any other Olympic Games. It is not our place as average runners 
to question or criticize Simone Biles' decision. I think when you've won that much gold, you have the right to say uh, what you were dealing with and the right to make the decision that you want that is in your own best interest. But I've heard a lot of that. Uh, I've heard a lot of criticism. Uh, I've also heard a lot of support. Our hope is to advance that story a little bit in a running context. As we first share our own experiences with running and mental health, which to us, running is a release, it's an outlet. And I'm sure for many of you, it is as well. That's the beauty of us as amateurs, what we can use the sport for. But we also face our own pressures in running when we get to race day. Races mean a lot to us too, just like they do to Olympians. And so in the second half of this conversation, we'll shift and move to some preparation for race day and then on race day, what you can do to master any anxieties, stresses you feel as you compete. Cosmo, you've shared a little bit of your story before here, and I'd love for you to just briefly go back through that and what you've gone through and how running has helped you transform as a man. Uh, and then Ben and I will share a little more as well. So, Cosmo, the floor is yours, bud. Okay. Oh, man, running's done so much. Uh, running has done so much for me and my family and has helped me through a lot of difficulties in the past few years that I don't know how I would have dealt with otherwise. So, I won't go into all those details, but um, all of my life, since I was in probably middle school, I I recognized how sensitive of a person I was. And I dealt a lot with, with depression and anxiety. And I didn't really know how to cope with it. At the, the time, I was playing in sports as a kid. And so there was always an outlet for me to work out, to work out how I was feeling on the, the baseball diamond or on the, on the football field. and. I, th I think that's, I, mean, I, I did really well overall in, in school and, 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 uh, and I had good friendships in high school. And so I felt like a fairly normal kid. And then after my freshman year of college, when I stopped playing football and I started playing music and just went a different direction, I stopped training altogether. And for about, oh gosh, uh, 15 years, I really didn't, I mean, a couple of seasons where I was in the weight room, but. Um, I never, man, I, I never exercised, <laughs> and I, I, there was a, a gradual um, regression or a gradual uh, decline in my mental health over those 15 years. Uh, well, I guess it was over about 12 or 13 of those years. And you know, long story short, and when I was living in Boston, my wife finished up school. You know, I, I was, uh, I was on high dosage of Adderall and I had to take medicine to wake me up and make me focus and then another medication to go to sleep at night and it was this it was this nasty nasty cycle I was in where I let something outside of myself control my body you know, after several years of this um, eventually I, I was uh, referred to another psychiatrist who said she thought I might be bipolar. I have bipolar too. And that was really hard here. I remember it was winter and I, I walked home from the doctor's office that was in Boston. 
walked back home to the South End in the snow, just like crying my eyes out because I didn't know the implications of this. You know, I, <laughs> it came as a shock and I, I went home and I remember laying on my couch and just grieving for a, a night or so. All that to say, uh, after going back to some specialists, there's, there, everybody's on the spectrum, right, of being this or that, whatever it is. Everybody's on the spectrum. And I fall somewhere uh, in between uh, someone who, who deals with uh, a bipolar diagnosis or schizophrenia or any of these other life-altering diseases. I fall a little closer to what some might call normal. Um, but I still have extreme highs and lows. And the lows get I mean, dark and I have a hard time getting out of them. But I also have seasons of what the doctor might call hypomania, where I just, I'm elated. <laughs> I have these grandiose thoughts and visions and you know things that like, I'm on top of the world. Uh, but with one, you get the other oftentimes. And a, a few years after, after that, I, I met a friend um, who got me to start running and at the beginning, uh, end of December or uh, 2018 or so. And, you know, what was a five mile run around uh, Jamaica Pond in Jamaica Plain, Massachusetts, turned into like two and a half years of training in which I, uh, my wife and I saw a, a shift in me from mood instability and just weeks of depression to a, a consistent and level-headed version of myself that I had a, a hard time finding that version of myself without having some consistent training physically that I don't know I don't know if it took me back you know to when I was younger and gave me some perspective I don't know if that if it does that or I don't know exactly what it does to me chemically, biologically, to make, to snap me out of this mentally. But I've, you know, I went from someone who didn't know what they wanted to do with their lives, someone who dealt with an existential depression. Everything was a crisis and I didn't know what to do next. And I didn't make goals or didn't really work towards anything for a season. You know, I just kind of existed. And I guess running has taught me, training has taught me to, to set goals and to, that I, I am worth, I'm, my, my body and my mental state is worth making sacrifices for. You know, if that's not spending, out with a, spending time with a group of people as much, or if it's not getting to do, play guitar as much, whatever the hobby is, or, you know, as long as I'm not sacrificing the things that are important in my life, like I filled my time with, with training in it, and it, from that seed, so much fruit has been realized from the investment in uh, taking care of my body and my mental health. So going, going from that person who just doesn't know what's next and is sad about it to someone who is driven and says, no, I can do this, whatever the next thing is. I can get this job. I can make music. Um, I can be the, <laughs> be the best version of myself for my children that I can be. You know, like it, it just gives me a, a higher bar, something that's, it's just something I didn't experience prior, prior to running. So I can't really explain to you what it was or what it is that does it. I've got some studies that I'd love to reference at some point in this conversation.
that might give us some evidence for why this is, but there's a positive correlation between um, training consistently and how much I like myself <laughs> and how much uh, uh, I'm able to be a better father, be a better husband, uh, be a more present employee and friend. Well, you mentioned there the last thing, Cosmo, about the type of friend you are. I know that you've found a lot of friendships through your yeah. running. One point I'll add to your story is there is no question. The evidence shows that running with others, running with friends, provides a real face-to-face -face interaction. Mm -hmm. And we know that real face-to-face -face genuine interactions where we're not behind a screen, but we're also authentic with each other, which happens when we're running, yeah. are places where true listening, understanding, and then growth occur. And that's yeah, growth for us as people, as fathers, like you said, as friends, uh, as employees. And so that's one of the great side effects, the great side benefits of your experience. Uh, that's great. Great stuff, man. We'll, we'll come back to you. I'm going to let Ben take over here for a sec. Ben, if you could share uh, your experience with everyone. I, I know you have, ha have a great story to tell as well. So go ahead, bud. It's yours. Yeah. So I guess I'm going to approach this from a little bit of a different lens, just because my introduction to running came at an earlier age. So for context, I'm gonna kind of talk about four things that running taught or gave me. And primarily those things like started happening while I was in high school. So for context, uh, I kind of grew up as the outcast kid. Like I entered high school, I was 6'1 and 115 pounds. So I looked like a mutant. Kind of always struggled uh, with manic depressive disorder. So where you had mentioned earlier, getting these extreme highs and lows, I really just got the lows of that um, and my way of dealing with that uh, through middle school and I think even as early as fifth grade was self-harm and that was progressive in my life. And then, <laughs> yeah, uh, one day uh, a kid at my school convinced me to go out for cross country um, and I'm really grateful that Ben Shuba did that. Uh, so here are the four things that I've been taught or received from running. Uh, so for the first thing, I got a community. Growing up, feeling those thoughts, I struggled believing anything was genuine or that I was good or that anyone cared to speak to me. I would always put on this face of like stern disappointment. So I became unapproachable by others. And I found the nerdiest, funnest group of people I could have and no matter what I looked like or what I said, they were just happy I was there and I was running with them. It was a good example of family is not always blood. And yeah, I had never been immersed in a community before. Uh, and within that community, I learned the lesson of empathy. With uh, the depression I was dealing with, I always saw myself as a victim. So I had never taken the time to look at others and their experiences. And I think because of this point is why I love coaching is I realized that everyone else was struggling through the same thing I was in practice and in races. And if someone was having a bad workout, I'd go up and talk to them. And for the first time in my life, I was considering other people's feelings. 
Um, and that's really evolved me as a man. It also taught me passion and work ethic. I think anyone who's met me can attest that I love running, track and field, cross country, ultra marathons, um, but also just the work ethic. Um, if you looked at my skill set as a runner, I probably shouldn't have run the events I was running, but I just wanted to do more running. So I kept running all the mileage I could because it was fun, but that's carried over. So even in my marriage, it's taught me to pursue my wife, even when I don't want to, or it might be difficult. Uh, with my career, it's taught me not to settle. I've been in a lot of comfortable uh, positions and had to take some big risks uh, for some rewards that I may not see. And that's exactly what we see when we're training. Uh, we're doing the big workouts, we're up in the mileage and we might not get the result, but we become better people by taking those chances and working for it. Um, and then the last thing it gave me was confidence. It took that geeky 6'1", 115 pound kid, made him believe in himself. Um, I was able to go to college and do this and get some money for it. And I get to share my love with it now. And if you told that kid he'd be talking to anyone, like he knows something about anything now, he would have never bought it. So yeah, those are the uh, four things that running has taught and has given me. Ben, I'd like to add a fifth one to your list, uh, knowing you as well as I do. Maturity. It has helped. Uh, I've seen it. The way you've grown as a man over the time we've known each other. And that's not just about running, but running is a part of it. What was the kid's name again who introduced you to the cross-country team? Ben Shuba. I hope the other Ben there is, is listening now and... and hearing what you're saying about this sport and what he meant and what this has meant. I don't know how I'm going to follow you two. <laughs> That's my biggest concern right now. What's beautiful about this is your two stories, which you know, what I know of them, where has it been shared with me for the first time? While we ran. Mm -hmm. That's, that's how we shared this story. I'm the old man of this group and uh, it's probably come through once or twice on this program that I get a little cynical about uh, modern technology at times, uh, not in the grandfatherly, I can't operate it way, but in a, a real concern about the impact it has on our human interactions and our ability to interact with each other. And we're forced to do so well when we get in person and run. But modern society, that of just the past decades, uh, as it's accelerating so rapidly. And we're in a space of an incessant quest for productivity, accomplishment, and even more so, and maybe the most deleterious, is accumulation in our society. We mix that with the copious amounts of time spent on social media or streaming video. These are technologies that didn't even exist in the 20th century. We spent the entirety of human civilization with our brain evolving to operate in a world without those stimuli and being forced to look each other in the eye and to speak to one another face to face. And that change has been one of the factors that has accelerated the instances of anxiety and depression 
which are at the highest rates ever recorded in our history. I read a study that the average teenager today lives with a level of anxiety that in the 1950s was considered high enough to be institutionalized. That is remarkable, it is sad, and it says something about what we are doing to ourselves and to one another. It, it's why we promote running in, in community because it's an opportunity to love one another and lift one another up. To reinforce that, there is plenty of evidence that demanding activity and leisure time, rather than just leisure all the time, reading books, I love to read as much as anyone, but that a demanding activity like running, this is the Rooseveltian strenuous life perspective, a demanding activity in leisure time is proven to energize us more for the other aspects of our day than just simple passive consumption. Start your day with a run or a swim or a lift or yoga and see how the day at work goes as a result, rather than starting your day with scrolling through a, a computer or phone screen. I think you'll see it doesn't have to just be the evidence. It can be anecdotally a case study of one to you, what it can do to improve your day and in turn your mental health. I think I'll surprise a little bit the, the people who know me well and, and even you two with, with my story, which is not one of the depression that you two have, have touched on, but as a guy who most of the time is in a pretty happy mood and seems to have uh, a positive outlook on life 99% uh, of the time and, and wants to bring energy to each day. I, I've said to, this to Ben just recently, attack each day with an enthusiasm unknown to mankind. I can also relate a story of laying down for a nap and about 20, 30 minutes later, waking up and just feeling like something's off. I felt wrong. I was kind of stirring, and, but really tired. I was just physically exhausted. Got back to sleep for maybe another half hour. And I woke up in what maybe I didn't understand in the moment, but was uh, a panic attack. The immediate anxiety of the feeling of the world's coming to an end. My life's coming to an end. Uh, what what do I do? Where do I find meaning? Just incredibly overwhelmed and not having any perspective. Uh, and this was in my adult life. Uh, not like then when you said you encountered it maybe in middle school. I, I didn't have an experience with this. And it was a, a very strange and difficult moment for me that it was not a one-off. It's not something I've dealt with consistently over time, maybe as you two in your experiences, but I'm sure there's other people out there who have had that moment like I have, or had a, a few of those like me. And I'll tell you where I was able to get away from it. It was on a run. For me, it particularly happens on workout day and a hard workout. I think you get so consumed in a challenging workout, there's almost no time to think about anything else and in any way be anxious or stressed. It's all consuming. It, it's the beauty of that challenge. And just stacking those, like we do with our training, consistency of stacking one on top of the next, uh, of those days where, hey, I had a good run, I had a good workout. Let's embrace that. Let's think of the positivity of that. Let's focus on the important and not the immediate. 
as I've said here in the past, and know that if we just slow down and focus in on the day we're in and the moment that we are in and do it as well as we can, that creates a better opportunity for us to get where we want in the future. When opportunity comes to us in the future, we're more prepared for it. Every day is to be what Cosmo said, an opportunity to be a better version of ourselves. And whatever state we're in, we can take that opportunity. And if we just lay that foundation and build it brick by brick, it can add up to where I look at my day today, for example, and that anxiety that I felt in a moment in the past is something that barely crossed my mind today. That doesn't mean it won't come back up tomorrow, but it does mean when it happens, I have a skill and an outlet and a joy that I know that all of us share, that everyone else listening to this shares, that we can get out and make the most of every day outside or on the treadmill or in the swimming pool, wherever it might be for you. What a gift that is. Dwight Stone, the great high jumper who now does commentary. I once heard him in race coverage say, the greatest gift that you can give someone is a dream. That's really beautiful. And that dream might be something as simple as just getting to a better circumstance of where you are in your mind. I'm going to cap my portion of this segment here before we talk about some race day stuff with an excerpt from a classic book, Thoreau's Walden. And in Walden, he writes about his time living in a cabin in the woods removed from, a, interestingly, a society going through similar transition as the Industrial Revolution swept across our country, now as an information and technological one sweeps through our time. He describes why he went to the woods. He said, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately. Boy, that right there, that's in our running, to run deliberately. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. Ah, that feels like the discovery we might all make if we become so swept up in modern society and forget about the things that make us human, like our relationships and like our ability to express our bodies in motion. Cosmo, I'm gonna go back to you, bud. I know you said you had um, some some studies that you were looking at. So I'd like you to either go there if you'd like, or if you have a um, maybe one race day prep idea that has helped you get over any anxiety or uncertainty you might have on race day. So either way, whatever you feel like you have that you would most like to share. Sure, I'll uh, share a little bit of a little bit of both. Yeah, those studies I was referencing. Um, there's a, a website, I guess it's the U.S. National Library of Medicine, National Institutes of Health, had an article uh, entitled A Scoping Review of the Relationship Between Running and Mental Health. And they do several studies. I believe it's uh, 47 or so. And 16 of the 47 studies directly compared measures of mental health in runners and non-running comparisons. And they found that runners have lower depression and anxiety, lower stress, uh, higher psychological well-being, and better mood compared to sedentary controls. And this study goes on and on. 
and on to talk about how uh, how running positively affects your mental health and your overall well-being. Um, I'll send the link to you and you can drop it in the show notes. But you know, for those data-driven individuals that <laughs> need to prove, like there there have been certain studies. You know, I, I was wondering earlier when I was talking, like, why is this that we're just better off when we're when we're doing this thing? And um, obviously, we can't always pinpoint it, but you know, to see the to see that in, in study after study, it, there's a positive correlation, and it's, it's reason enough for me to keep doing it. It goes on like in several other spots to also talk about the things that runners deal with um, psychologically. You know how how um, struggles like runners sometimes deal with negative addictions. Uh, is something that I I do with. Right? Like I, I've always been one to latch on to something, whether it be something that's good or bad for me. <laughs> and all that to say, like, first of all, we're going to be better off when we're running. And we're going to make better choices about where we spend our energy and our effort and our time and money when we're running. So, and with that, like, I, I want to tack this on to to y'all's mention of how much the running community means to you, how much it means to me. Like it, you can't do it alone. Like you can, you, you could, but there's a marked difference in my first 10 months of running or, or so. I guess it was about six or seven before I met you guys, Travis, but I mean, it was harder <laughs> and it was lonely and it, I didn't experience all the mental health benefits until I got a crew, you know, until I got a, in a group of people who were pushing each other to be better and to get up and do the thing and someone else is waiting for you. That accountability piece we talked about time and time again. But on race day, I like to be with my family. On my first race, my dad, my dad took me to the starting line, you know, at the Sphinx race that October. He was passing bottles and he was there. Like I wanted him there, and it was there was something special to me about doing this with my dad. I didn't think as much about my anxiety and my nerves when I was like trying to make my dad proud, you know, and like run for something bigger than just like my time, you know, how fast I could do it or whatever, which is obviously important to me. But, and then this past uh, marathon traps that we ran in Toledo in April. Like, my brother came up and he was there, you know, doing the same thing. And it, I, I've, I found that again, like nerves weren't as much of the issue when I, when I wasn't thinking so much about myself and my performance. So that's about all I have on the race day front. I've, I've, I don't have near the experience you two have on the, on the course, but. Well, that, yeah. that's, that's a great one, Cosmo. It, having someone to share the day or the trip the experience with i i do think is very valuable and yeah. it puts race day then into some degree of context mm-hmm. where it, it's not just about the race it's about sharing life and sharing moments and memories with people you care about yeah. i do think that takes some of the pressure off the race while simultaneously adding value to that very experience so I love that piece of advice for a mastering race day. Share the experience with someone or a few people or a lot of people who mm-hmm. really matter to you. That's great. Benji, 
What can you add to us uh, on some race day tips? Sure. So this is still something I'm in the process of learning and growing in, but it actually made me think of listening to you talk, Cosmo. Uh, I was asked this morning by one of my athletes if I preferred cross country or track. Um, And I thought back just now to my high school and college running because I dealt with a lot of anxiety on the starting line and I didn't finish races because of that. But I can tell you, I I told her cross country and you talking just made me realize why. Uh, When I was running cross country, I was standing on the line with six other guys. Uh, When I was standing on the start line in a track race, I was by myself. So I think just leaning into that community, um, if you're at a road race, meet someone in the corral next to you. Just have a conversation. The gun's gonna go off and you can worry about it then. Doing X number stride and just fretting there isn't gonna do anything to make you perform any better. But just being present in that experience and immersed in that community. Yeah, when I think back to my running, it's when I've been surrounded by people, it's when I ran the best. Yeah, Ben. I can think of conversations I've had on the line at my biggest road races, like say Boston marathons. I can vividly remember those moments that I shared with people who before that time I had never met. We are there in a single bond with the same goal in love for that race and that space. That's a great way again to just kind of ease the nerves a little bit. I don't want it to be disingenuous. Like when I meet someone new, I, I want to listen to them and I want to learn their story. But it's okay to have the ulterior motive of doing that so that you can calm your own nerves and, and steal yourself before the race day activities. I like that you said you're still, still dealing with it too. Because I think a lot of us, I know there's people who are high school, college, even beyond who, I'm not saying this to to your case, Ben, but are are sabotaging themselves and who are looking for an excuse for race day not to go well. They're, They're building an excuse. And so that's something to be very careful about. If you are logging your run on Strava, if your professional runners love to do this, sharing their workout video pictures on Instagram, right? When you start embedding in that text that says, ah, I bailed because I got this niggle, my hamstrings acting up. You gotta be very careful with that stuff. Don't let it grow just to be an excuse. If it's there as a training marker for you to understand this is in my training history and I had something that went wrong and I need to be careful about it and not press for the next few days, that's one thing. But don't allow that to become the point that you can look back and say, ah, well, you know, three weeks ago I was hurt. So it's probably not going to be the race that I want it to be. So we have to be really good about our, our self-talk that's not really self-talk anymore because it gets shared with everyone when our training logs are now visible to everyone. And I'll just add a point as an aside to that, that's something that I've done. I've deleted the Strava app on my phone. I just use it on the computer so I log in and, and put my run in and then, you know, I'll, I'll check like the athletes that I work with or my friends that I run with, what they're doing for the day. 
but I, I took it off the phone because I didn't want to have the constant reminder of being able to click there and just the worry of in some way, I don't know if it's comparison or um, it, it's the general phone app idea of it's just a slot machine and you're pulling that lever and hoping for a reward because all the studies will tell you that a reward that is intermittent and unpredictable is more rewarding to us than that which is predictable. That's just how our brains operate. And so eliminating the thirst for that unpredictable reward could be a helpful tip. Ben, did you have something else you wanted to add there? Yeah, so just a slight deviation from the heaviness. Yeah, please. This is supposed to be fun. Mm. If you can burp on the start line, burp. <laughs> my Some of my best races, they shot the gun and I was like, oh no, and took <laughs> off just like screaming. <laughs> it's running. Just It's yeah. supposed to be fun. If you need yeah. to, do something silly. Eliminate that pressure by remembering you're supposed to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. You're choosing to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great. Uh, my move when I'm on the line with guys I know when we start a race, I think I gave you one of these in Toledo, Cosmo. I love to smack a guy on the butt and just kind of say, hey, here we go, babe. Like, let's get this thing rolling and just lighten the mood a little bit and have a little fun with it. I'm going to go a bit more academic in my approach to some some tips here because I think these are all really helpful, tangible things that Uh, we can do to better prepare to master race day. The first is not for race day, but for the entirety of your training. This is an overarching strategic design idea. The principle behind your running. I think you have to do a reframing and we always speak this way. There are no expectations. There are only opportunities. These are chances to do something great chances to find joy, chances, as Ben said, to do something you love that is fun. Expectations are placed on you by the outside. Opportunities come from within. That's the way that I look at every run, every race. Jay Wright, two-time national champion coach at Villanova University Basketball, uh, one of my favorite programs. Uh, He wrote in in his book, Attitude, after his first uh, national championship, the world evaluates on its own terms. We evaluate on ours. Opportunities over expectations. Just let that guide everything about your running. And I think it will help you when you get to race day, not worried about what anyone else is going to think. You're going to go do it for you because you're prepared for it. Some functional things. One, prioritize sleep. There is no question that this is the greatest tool for getting to race day, both mentally and physically well. Cosmo, I know you're struggling with this one right now because you're so busy. We all feel a little more punchy, uh, a little less ourselves when we're not sleeping enough. And it's also holding us back from our ability to recover from our running. And I know also that when you're in a mental state that it's difficult and even if you're just frazzled, but if it's something bigger like an anxiety or depression, that, that sleeping, sleep can be difficult. We are not medical professionals. We want you to speak to those people. If you have issues here, we love to talk to you. We'd love to run with you. <laughs> if you want to do that, get a hold of us. 
But if you have serious questions about struggling with your sleep, speak to someone who's an expert here that might be able to give you guidance because prioritizing sleep is a huge thing. Next, in your training, put yourself in training situations that mimic some of the obstacles you might face on race day. So let's start with simple. You qualified for Boston. You're nervous about it. It's a big race. You got to travel there. First time on this big stage. Start your long runs at 10 a.m. Do it a few times. It's going to be different than what most of us normally do. But Boston, when does the gun go off? Hopkinton, 10 a.m. Another option, practice with a group. Train with a group. We've already mentioned what it does for us mentally, but it can be very helpful if you get overwhelmed by being in a big pack on race day. If that's part of your race day anxiety, all these people around you, Get used to putting yourself there. Uh, this is what we see so often. What do people do to overcome something like a fear of water or a fear of heights? You got to go put yourself in a situation with safety nets and start to pull those safety nets away and realize what's the worst that can happen to me? Well, get yourself in a group. Do a workout with a group. Be packed up. So you start to feel that and know what that's like on race day in a crowded field. If you're someone like me, I can't stand to go into like Target or, or whatever store it is. I just immediately get this phobia and hypnosis going on. There's way too many people around me and way too much going on. And it's a little overwhelming. Well, when you can get in that experience within racing where you're more comfortable with that and use some of these tools we're talking about, it can eliminate those distractions and you can just focus on what's right ahead of you. If you got a history of shutting down in a race, when your goal seems to be slipping away from you in a race, how do you respond? Do you shut down? Do you pivot and say, uh, maybe I still have a shot? Or say, let's make the most of what I have for today? If you seem to shut down, then maybe we need to do more work in training that involves cut downs or fast finishes, progression runs, workouts that are designed to do the exact opposite of what your racing history suggests. Also, it's okay to race when you aren't 100% ready, but remember to use that as a tool for finding your strengths and weaknesses. It is not a racing value judgment. And more importantly, Ben, you said this like 70 episodes ago, your racing is not a measure of your self-worth. It, it does not define who you are as a person. It's something you do to challenge yourself, to find joy, to see what your limits are, to push the edges of humanity. Racing when you're not prepared to race, completely prepared, can't be a value judgment on who you are as a runner, not yourself, but just as a runner. It needs to be an opportunity to, to assess honestly, what are my strengths and weaknesses? It's okay to go out and bust some rust and run a race when you're not 100% ready. And also, don't drop out of that race. Don't get in the habit of giving yourself an excuse. Finish it and then say, ah, I was crap at the two mile mark through 5K, but you know what? I finished. There's something good to pull, a strength, and there's a weakness. It allows us to, to design training. If you're with a coach, talk with your coach about what happened in that race that can make you better and then better prepare you for the big races, the command performances, the races that you target and peak for perhaps only a couple times a year. Those are a different story. We need thorough preparedness there of all the physical and mental aspects that that event requires for success. 
but it's all right to tune up along the way and make mistakes so that you can be better prepared for the big one. One that I love for the night before the race in particular is visualization. And don't just give the highlights. Don't just think about what the clock's gonna say when you come through the line. Go through the entire process from waking up where you have your clothes laid out, your breakfast, the ride to the race, the warm up on the line. Envision the entire thing. You're working your way through the course. And as Dan King talked about in his episode on a record setting master's mile, visualize both the good and the bad. But when you get to the bad, don't just shut down. Visualize how you're going to respond to it. Okay, so that comes in tandem with my next piece of advice for actual race day. That is have a plan. Walk through that plan, but be ready to respond when it goes off the hinges because most times it does. And sometimes that's in a good way. Every once in a while, we get through the marathon at 20 miles and you're ahead of pace and actually feel good and think you can negative split. Those are beautiful moments. How do you respond to that once in a lifetime good moment? Sometimes it's harder to respond to the great moment than it is to the bad one. Now, Mike Tyson, to paraphrase, says, we all have a plan until we are punched in the mouth. We tend to get punched in the mouth in every race. Do you shut down or do you respond? So know that, okay, I had a plan, but something popped up. I have to be ready to pivot and I have to be mentally prepared for that. So I've walked through a visualization of what could go right and what could go wrong. Most important for everyone on race day to remember, it's okay to be nervous. Nerves mean it matters, and nerves mean that you care. But race morning isn't a time for a bunch of rah-rah. So if you're at the race with your friends, or you're a coach working with a team, don't fire people the heck up right before a race. That moment has passed. It should have been the day before, or it should have been the week before, or it should have been the entire training block. But the morning of is the time to reinforce your confidence in your preparation. It's the time to remind yourself of the training that you've completed. You are ready to do this. It might be the time to actually even in the day before or the morning of, look through your training log. Look at all the work you've done. Reinforce that you are ready. And I think that has its own calming effect as well. So if you're nervous, great. I'm going to speak for the other two guys here. All three of us are at least a little bit every time we start a race. But I am equally excited, and I can't wait for the next opportunity to race. Guys, I want to just open the floor. Any last thoughts here that y'all have? Uh, this has been a fantastic discussion that I've enjoyed so much. I've learned a lot from both of you tonight. Anything either of you would like to add before we go? Uh, likewise, it was great to hear both of your stories. You know, I know we've been friends for a while. You, Travis, and Ben, I know we've kind of missed each other in, in transit. But, yeah, it's great to hear your, your stories. It's super encouraging. It was super encouraging to me to keep at it. <laughs> so, thanks. Yeah, thank you, bud. Benji? I, I think it's really easy for us to talk and be genuine on the podcast but it's not always easy to be completely open. Mm. So I just wanted to say thank you to both of you for allowing yourself to be a little bit vulnerable and hopefully someone out there hears what they needed to hear from this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's 
a great fitting cap right there, Ben. If you've got questions about this stuff, if you'd like to talk with us, if you're just looking for somebody to run with, to talk about life, and you live near where one of us live, secondsflatpodcast at gmail.com. We will respond, and we would love to have you in a conversation or on a run with, with one or all of us at some point soon. Gentlemen, I would say we need to go to bed, but guess what? There's a 110 hurdles final coming up soon that is going to be dynamite. World record. Calling it now. Mr. Holloway, 12.75. There it was. You don't even need to watch, fans. Well, by the time, <laughs> by the time you hear this, it will have already happened, but you don't need to watch the replay because – Benji has told us, I mean, how smooth this Grant Holloway looked in the heats and the semis. What an athlete. Can't wait to watch it here shortly. Guys, this has been fantastic. We look forward to seeing everyone on mile 93 of the Seconds Flat Running podcast. I don't know if we'll have the three horsemen back together again soon, but I'm glad we could do it. It was just a great privilege to have this conversation with both of you. So until next time, great running. And we'll see everybody soon here on Seconds Flat. Bye. Thanks, Coach.